How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Just North of Hell podcast. I'm your host, Mark Thomas, and this episode 31, and obviously in a different space, um, we're doing using Discord. And But today we're being joined by two guests, um, Mr. Jordan and also uh, Jake Guy. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Mark. And yeah, overall. thank you. So today, like the agenda is mainly just Bitcoin. I'd assume some stuff about privacy, but Bitcoin mostly. So that's the uh, name of the game here. Yeah, I think um, a good place to start too would be just to kind of like talk about how we came to Bitcoin. Um, and then we can kind of, you can kind of steer it from there, Mark, if that sounds good to you. Yeah, well, I think first also, you have a lot of like brands and stuff kind of in the making, but also your Bitcoin uh, newsletter. I think that's probably worth mentioning because both you guys have a lot of knowledge. I think, uh, I mean, you guys know more about than me. Yeah, uh, I think to, when I like start talking about some of the stuff, I'll, I'll definitely mention that, um, you know, places where people can look. But, um, but yeah, I think we could probably just start off, you know, how we came to Bitcoin, what it is, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I that think sounds good to you. I still feel like a lot of people don't know what Bitcoin is. It's kind of sad. So maybe just a general description of what Bitcoin is and why specifically Bitcoin, because there's still like Ethereum, Cardano, Doge, unfortunately. <laughs> What's Bitcoin, Jordan? What you say? What is Bitcoin? The 21 million Bitcoin question. Exactly. I Okay, I'll take a stab at it, and then Jake can fill in some gaps. I'll try to keep it as layman as possible, too, just okay. so people can understand it. Um, but yeah, what is Bitcoin? So I think the easiest way I can describe it, and it's taken a long time to gain this sort of clarity to even describe it because there's just so much to it. Uh, but what Bitcoin is, is it's just an asset and it's also a network. So a lot of people only really see the asset on their phones. So when they're on like Cash App or wherever they buy it or Coinbase, whatever, they just see, you know, Bitcoin is $36,000 or whatever. Um, and all that is, is the asset piece of it. So that's how much one Bitcoin is. And a Bitcoin is, there, there are 21 million Bitcoin, so it's limited, it's incorruptible, so no one can go in and change that number. It's going to stay 21 million. There's no crazy you know, money printing out of nowhere like we're seeing in our current system. Right. And that asset is, you know, it's valuable because it's scarce and because of all the cool things it can do. So the cool things it can do, like send from me to Jake or, you know, if Mark wants to send me some Bitcoin, he can just send it to me uh, with no bank in the middle. That's like revolutionary. So there's no more need for a third party or someone to basically be a gatekeeper on your money. We can all just send Bitcoin to one another. Easy peasy. Um, and the network. So the second portion that I mentioned is what allows that to happen. So Bitcoin is an asset. The asset is the value. And then the network is what allows any of that to happen without any gatekeepers. So I think that's like the easiest way to describe Bitcoin. Um, obviously, there is way more to it. But for a lot of people, they don't make that distinction that it's both an asset and a network. They just think it's like imaginary money on the Internet. 
Um, so yeah, that's kind of like my easiest way of explaining it. I'm sure Jake has another way of kind of explaining Bitcoin to people without getting too far into the weeds. Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, I like to go down the the monetary rabbit hole. Like, what is money? I would just describe Bitcoin as kind of a perfect form of money um, that's well-suited as we kind of transition from the industrial age to the information age. Um, and to come to that perspective, I think you re- really got to think about like what are the components or the aspects of good money? What has made money historic? Like, what what is it? I think that sends you down a learning path to kind of figure out and learn, you know, the different properties of Bitcoin and why it has value over time. Um, so I guess what is money? It's just the most saleable good across time and across space that has five, maybe six different properties. It's portable, uh, durable, divisible, fungible, and scarce. And some other people might say verifiable. Um, Each of these properties kind of contribute to what a lot of people are saying Bitcoin as Bitcoin being the most perfect form of money we've ever had because it fits each one of these categories better than any other economic good that has emerged on the free market. Um, so that's kind of the path I take people down when I'm trying to explain it. Because then you get people starting to talk about economics this, economics that, monetary policy this. And you just can say, hey, take a step back. Okay, what is money? And then I think that can kind of be a good way to think about a good context to think about all these different companies and Bitcoin for um, if yeah, I, I think Jake hit the nail on the head. I think uh, a lot of times too, when I talk to people, they're like, I, I've ran into this opposition all the time. People are like, hey, Bitcoin is fake money. Like this is real money and they'll well, hold up like yeah, a dollar. Real, but look yeah. in your bank account. That's just some digital numbers they coded in. Bada boom, bada bang. Exactly. exactly. And they don't even actually have that money. They only have like... Yeah fractional reserve banking so they only have you know maybe three percent of that money in the bank so if there's ever a bank run you know you're out of luck because everyone's getting their money out and the last you know the last few people with their money in there are not actually getting any money so and you see that in all these countries that have like hyperinflation and stuff so Uh i uh i think the big question that everyone should ask themselves listening to this or watching this is what is money and when you start answering or diving into that rabbit hole, you just realize everything's been a lie. You realize that the U.S. dollar is actually just money because the government said so. And it's just an endless rabbit hole. So, yeah, I mean, and that's why we're here talking about it. <laughs> when I describe Bitcoin to like, you know, people that don't really have much knowledge, like I always go for like the like the description, of like describe it to gold because like gold is scarce, like Bitcoin, but the problem with gold, you can't carry a bunch of gold around you without worrying that you're going to be robbed. And also that's heavy. So I just say it's just digital gold. And But people, I think, still have a hard, under, hard um, understanding of what that actually is. 
right another thing too is gold gold can be counterfeited so like there's like i think fool's gold yeah might be the counterfeit well i probably got um, some in my closet over there oh you can't see but people <laughs> on the camera can see yeah Facebook. i could go buy like a gold, a gold chain for ten dollars and it's not real gold yeah. and tell people it's gold. so and obviously there are tests for that but with bitcoin it's all in the code it's easy to verify that you know no bitcoins being added to the supply and if someone is trying to do that then it's you know not allowed because of the bitcoin nodes that kind of oversee everything so uh so yeah i i think that's also an awesome approach mark um it's probably the most relatable one honestly just because yeah. people know what gold is. so um and to take it one step further it's like once you actually get people to just download a bitcoin wallet and send bitcoin back and forth even if it's just like five dollars worth or you know ten thousand sats which are you know there's a hundred million sats in a bitcoin um and it, it makes it even easier so really getting them to just start using the technology instead of just explaining it really helps I think another thing people like struggle to understand like is like I tell them there's only a limited amount of Bitcoin and I think that causes a lot of trust issues because it's digital but like like our money it's digital I mean I guess how how should people trust that that actually that's never going to be exploited and that there will never be more than 21 Bitcoin 21 million Bitcoin Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, obviously the people. Oh, go ahead, Jake. I was like, I said you don't have to trust. You can you can verify. You can run your own node, and you can run the numbers and check that the supply check what the money supply is, and verify all that data yourself. And that would be through those nodes, right? Yeah. And that's kind of one of the big differences between Bitcoin and, you know, other cryptocurrencies, quote unquote cryptocurrency, or the monetary systems we have today is because you can run your own node, you have your own copy of the ledger, and you're playing by your own rules, essentially. Um, so you don't have to trust any, you don't have to trust a bank to tell you how much you own if your wallets are connected to your own node, how much supply is circulating, or when the future having might be, or what the end supply is. You kind of run your own node, verify it yourself. So is the node kind of like a, in a nutshell, maybe like a financial advisor, but you're for yourself? I don't know. I, I, that's the one thing I kind of even myself struggle to understand. I feel like people who are trying to get into it, maybe they have some Bitcoin. They might hear stuff about nodes. They might be like, well, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, Jake, if you don't mind, just take a step back and just define what a node is. You might be better equipped to answer that question. I would just say it's right. a copy of the blockchain, the time chain, your own copy of the ledger. Um, so you don't have to trust anyone else. Oh, so you can look at the blockchain yourself and like scroll through and see what everything, what everything's going on, I guess, and like what the purchases are. And you can look at your own data from your own node, which is synced up with all the other nodes that are running Bitcoin Core software, and 
finding your own source of truth. I'm not off the garden. You've actually dug yeah. into that quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, so I think Jake uh, hit the nail on the head. I guess my definition of a node is it basically has every single thing that has happened on the Bitcoin network, your own node also has. It's a, in a complete copy of the Bitcoin network or the blockchain, or if you prefer, the time chain, which is another term used for, for blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, it has a complete copy, which then if you have a complete copy of the Bitcoin network at your disposal, you can link your wallet to it. And then that keeps your wallet information safe. You can use the node to verify how much Bitcoin is in the network. So I could just run a simple command on my node. I can audit audit the mon monetary supply, which is Bitcoin. So I could, if I run, ran it right now, I would see that there's a, approximately 19 million Bitcoin in circulation. If I saw that there was like 23 million, then I'd be like, holy crap, the 21 million got violated. But that doesn't happen because nodes yeah. also have, uh, have a protocol on them they have a rule set where they validate and verify that everything is happening within the rules. And these rules can be found in uh, the Bitcoin software, Bitcoin uh, code. So also to go back to your earlier question, Mark, you know, how can someone trust this stuff? If you can read code, then awesome, because you could literally just go to the Bitcoin repository and look through the code yourself. Um, but again, nodes are great for verifying it yourself and making sure that, you know, things are going as they should. And then the nodes enforce the rules and make sure no one's doing anything wonky or fishy. Yeah, it's like, because technically, like, you know, any government using a fiat currency, they could, like, create something like a their own version of the blockchain and say, oh, well, this is how much money there is. This is what's going on in the money. But really, they could be bullshitting us and there could be so much more money that we don't know what's going on with it. Yes, that's actually exactly what they're doing, just not with the blockchain. <laughs> yeah. Because we we don't have uh, U.S. dollar nodes. We can't audit them. We we have no idea how much is really in circulation. Uh, you have all this debt that has amassed. We're, there's no way we ever pay that off because there's probably not even that much money that exists. It's just a bunch of ones and zeros in cyberspace somewhere. So... Uh, yeah, there's no way to audit or verify anything that they say. And when people have accused them of that and said like, hey, we need to audit the Fed, they're like, no, no, you can't do that. You don't need to do that. So it's silly. That's right. why Bitcoin is awesome because we have a, a way to do that. And that's also an argument against some other cryptocurrencies where you cannot do that. You literally can't see how much is in, how much is circulating and how much, you know, supply there should be um so yeah that, that's nodes for you like with other cryptocurrencies i know some buddies of mine just a lot of people talk about is ethereum i mean ethereum is definitely a different type of coin and also has some you know definitely a reputation for being its own thing and working differently i mean i guess exactly what does ethereum do i guess in comparison to bitcoin and like does it actually have any value to it or does it contribute something value valuable that bitcoin might, might not contribute to yeah that's an awesome question i think uh the way to think about it is for the future monetary system and the hardest money ever bitcoin is the clear winner i think to most people because it's very simple there's only 21 million you can audit the supply 
Um, there's incentive to keep the network honest and working as it is. Um, and that kind of gets into Bitcoin mining, which we can t touch on later. Whereas Ethereum is uh, on its main layer. It has, you know, there's a ton of ETH out there. I don't even think you can audit it. In order to run your own Ethereum node, so you can't I think check it, Ethereum. You can't really check what's going on with it, unlike Bitcoin. Exactly. I don't believe you can check uh, the circulating supply. Um, they also to run a node, it is incredibly difficult. Um, I think they're called validation nodes. I'm not uh, too brushed up on that, so I would have to look into it a bit more. But it's not easy to procure a node, and with a decentralized currency. That is the hardest asset ever. You want you want people, everyday people, to be able to run their own nodes at home, so that everyone can kind of verify things um, and make the network more decentralized. Um, so Ethereum makes it really hard to do that, and also they have these things called smart contracts, which there are, I, I guess, technically smart contracts on Bitcoin. Um, I'd have to brush up a bit more on that as well. But Ethereum has these smart contracts where you can create decentralized applications. So you see like Uniswap, which is a really cool peer-to-peer uh, -peer swap service that people I think, can I use. I think I've used that before. If for something my friend was trying to get me to get some money off of one of those like Kiba Inu. But I had, oh, yeah, to, I had to have Ethereum to swap for um, Kiba Inu, and, I, and the amount I had to have was like not even worth it to do it. So I'm like, screw it. I'm not even going to invest in this coin to make a quick buck. Exactly. So you're actually touching on something I was about to bring up. So they pack in all of these cool features into uh, you know the base layer of Ethereum. And now the issue is it's so congested, and there's so many things happening on the first layer of Ethereum that now when you go to use one of these services, you have to pay a gas fee. So a gas fee, you know, enables yeah. you to make sort of transaction. So when you are using Uniswap and going to buy Shiba Inu or shitcoin or whatever, whatever. Yeah, it's all shitcoin, really. <laughs> exactly. When you go to buy it, it's like, if you want to buy $20 worth of Shiba Inu, you got to pay $100 to even buy it. And it's like, what? Yeah. So... Or you see it a lot on NFTs too. Like it, it, you got to pay a lot to play. And obviously those gas fees go up and down with, uh, you know, demand and how many people are using the network, but it's just, there's too much stuff packed into it. So the Ethereum foundation, which uh, is, is a foundation on ETH that uses, uh, or that has like Vitalik Buterin. I think he's a co-founder of Ethereum and a few other people are on that foundation. They've, um, you know, past changes so like i think one of the more, more recent ones was ethereum improvement proposal 1559 where they started like burning eth so that means um taking some of the circulating uh eth and sending it to an address that no one can touch so that it's like out of circulation um and that's supposed to help like you know raise the price and reduce the supply um but that's just like one of the few well, changes they they made without auditing and having like a theorem nodes or like easy ones, you really don't know where that burnt Ethereum is going. It could go to one of those guys' wallets or just someone that they're in touch with. You really don't know what they're doing with that. Right. And I'm sure like you can also probably go and verify that just by using like a, a block explorer or something. But I, I haven't done that sort of work. But uh, at the end of the day, that's just like one of the changes they made. Uh, a few years ago, there was a 
DAO hacked. I think that's decentralized autonomous organization operator. One of the two. I can't remember. Um, and instead of like just letting it play out and letting people get hacked, they actually forked Ethereum. So the original Ethereum is actually called Ethereum Classic. And the Ethereum you see now is actually not even the original. So th those are just like examples of changes they've made. And for a the hardest money in the world in you know the future monetary network, we don't want that kind of stuff. We don't want the congestion. Um, Confusion of different names. Right. Like we don't want these changes that just kind of come out of nowhere. And to their credit, they're not coming out of nowhere. Like they're letting the community know. But you don't want all of these like crazy changes, sweeping changes um, coming to, you know, your coin. So that's why Bitcoin's mm -hmm. great. It's very simple. The changes that occur are, you know, backwards compatible. So they're not like hard forks into another coin. You just stay with Bitcoin and, you know, maybe you just have to update your node or something. Um, and also there's a layer system. So instead of packing everything to Bitcoin layer one, now, if we want to do like small payments of Bitcoin without crazy fees, that's where you use the Lightning Network. So then I can send, you know, just a few sats to someone. Or I can literally pay you, Mark, with a penny's worth of sats using yeah. the Lightning Network, which is cool. That like, would kind of be like almost like the, the, Vem, the Vemo of um, Bitcoin, but without charges and stuff like that. Exactly. And like there are always, sometimes you won't really have any fees. Um, but if you do have fees, they're really low. So, and again, this is all happening without any gatekeepers or banks telling you yes or no. So, yeah, it's super cool stuff. Gotcha. Jake, I saw that you're about to say something. Um, I was just going to kind of reiterate the fact that Ethereum, some of these things we're talking about, those are examples of a system with rules that can be changed by people who kind of control the protocol or control, you know, there are people in places of power or wealth that can control the rules. Um, whereas decentral, where Bitcoin is decentralized and no one can change those rules. And that's one of the major components of Bitcoin is kind of the first decentral, one of the first decentralized systems that has kind of ever existed. That And that kind of makes it fair, open for everyone. You know, you don't down the line have anyone changing the rules to say, hey, you can't access your money based on data point X, Y, and Z. It's kind of open to anyone to run their software, receive, send, and hold. Kind of apathy either good or, you know, some other type of open source software project where they're able to verify the code themselves, which is really what makes it innovative in, in itself especially in kind of third world countries. Yeah. Yeah, people, I think one more. Oh, go ahead, Jake. Where people have historically been taken advantage of by people in power, rules are just changed on them in order to like gain control over a region or some, some form of monetary imperialism like that Alex Gladstein talks a lot about. Yeah, as I was say, like, I remember in an economics class, my professor, I think he had um, dollar bills from, oh man, all these African countries. Maybe, I can't remember which one, but like, it's like a $10 million bill because like, that's, 
yeah, it's Zimbabwe. I'm, and it's just like, you look at that and it's just like, well, there's an obvious solution to this, and it's Bitcoin. And trustworthy well, government exactly. officials as well to you know implement that. Yeah, so that's the result of government printing money until it's worthless. You know, it's not like every year a cheeseburger is getting more valuable. It's every year the purchasing power of the dollar or whatever your monetary unit that you choose to use, it's getting weaker over time because those people that control the rules of that system are manipulating the denominator and impacting the scarcity of that asset, which is what makes Bitcoin really innovative is it's the first asset to ever exist where no matter how high demand gets, no one can change the supply. Like it, it's just fixed. It's impossible to change, which over time leads to number go up forever until you, it, it turns into a deflationary economy, it turns the world into a deflationary system rather than an inflationary system. Um, yeah. I'll stop there. There's a lot. Yeah, one other thing I wanted to add in too was um, with Bitcoin, the creator was Satoshi Nakamoto, who is a, could be a guy, could be a girl, could be a group of people. No one knows because Satoshi just vanished off the face of the earth and was very private. So mm -hmm. literally no one knows who this person or people is or are. Whereas with a lot of these other coins, they all have founders. They all have co-founders. True, you don't know what they could do. If they could put something in the code real quick that makes it all theirs or just totally shuts it down. Right, they could rug pull you, um, which is just literally selling all their coins and then because they own most of them and then the project is, is garbage. So the issue with having like a front man or a CEO or co-founders is that then people are looking to you and you know that just attaches too much value to you for the project and it makes it feel a little more centralized even if it's not necessarily super centralized so there's this whole concept of like pseudo decentralization so it's like kind of decentralized but kind of centralized um that a lot of these projects are kind of kind of on at this point mm -hmm. um but yeah, that's kind of the danger of having the front man or the co-founder, the CEO. There's just too much value attached to you and, you know, to your word. So I think what Satoshi Nakamoto did is probably the best thing you could possibly do for a monetary system. He just vanished and left it to the masses, to the community, and to the world. Um, and it so could be I, confirmed I that... that he doesn't control it by looking through the blockchain. I mean, you could look at the blockchain because it's open source and confirm that this guy has no control of it. Exactly. You can look at like coin distribution, um, an excellent service to do that. It's called, I, I believe it's Glassnode, where you can do some sort of analytics and see, you know, how dispersed the coins are, all sorts of things. So there's a lot of services for that. Um, maybe even CoinMetrics has it as well. But yeah, it's, it's really easy to verify and, and check out. And I, I definitely encourage people to go do that. Yeah. Thinking about like, you know, like the the trust aspect, you know, because from the um, standpoint of, you know, the Ethereum creators, since like they're known or like, and then, you know, the case of Satoshi, how he's not known. 
and a lot of people have a distrust with that because they don't know really what if that's if you know they can't be like shut off or not even though our money can be shut off i guess how do you what's your argument for people to get that trust in bitcoin and actually like because not no one like you know i don't know how to recode so no one could confirm that how does like an average person just get that trust to know that bitcoin is safe and it's not going to be exploited yeah that's an excellent question um i'll I'll take a, a hit at it first jake and then you can take it um so I actually think trust is a lot of trust comes with familiarity. So the more familiar I am with someone, the more I trust that they'll act a certain way or in good faith or that I trust they're going to act in bad faith. So I stay away from them. So I think with Bitcoin, um, at first I didn't trust it at all. And then I'm not going to get into my story of how I got to it yet, yeah. but Jake was a large part of helping with that. And Jake's telling me like, dude, it's crashing. This is like 2020. You got to throw in a lot more money. And I was like, what do you mean? I didn't, I didn't trust that shit. <laughs> so I threw a little bit and then that made me go down the rabbit hole. And honestly, I think where people get a lot of trust is you talk to people who are already in the space and then, and also do your own research, but then you have to start playing with the technology and you only got to use a little bit of money. So like on cash app, you could like buy $5 worth of Bitcoin and just send it back and forth. If you can't read the code, no worries. What you can also do then is you can watch, um, or you can like set up your own node. So I think, um, tinkering with things. So setting up your own node and then use some of the features there to verify some of the, you know, some of the questions you have verify that things are good or or they're bad based on what your view of, of all this stuff is um i think at the end of the day it's just it's you're never going to fully trust anything that you like are a little uncertain about but it's all about like trust minimalization so well you want a ton of trust but you want to um you want to minimize the amount of things you have to trust so the more you tinker with the stuff the more you trust that the wallets work the more you trust that the nodes work and then if you buy a Bitcoin miner and you see it working and you see you are mining Bitcoin, you're going to trust that part of the network. Um, so I think just the more familiar you get with it and the more you use it, the more you'll just trust the whole system overall. Now, obviously, if you only just read the books and you don't like use the system at all, you're going to be like, this is a Ponzi scheme. This is a load of crap. The technology sucks. It's slow just because that's like some of the stuff you hear on the news or you just see on Twitter from some rando. But that's yeah. why it's super important to tinker with the stuff because you can't trust anything if you don't use it um but you could maybe trust it if you talk to someone you know who is super into bitcoin who you already trust and then you you hear them talk about it um but obviously don't ever just fully trust someone even if it's someone you know go do the work and go verify yourself so i couldn't agree more with that kind of description i think trust is just a series of trust is like a battery that you charge up over time via like a series of interactions um, where you get the result that you're expecting. And to Jordan's point, actually using the technology, downloading a wallet, taking control of your own keys, recovering, you know, a little Bitcoin on a couple different wallets, sending it back and forth to yourself, learning how to use the lightning network, learning how to use a node. All these things are just little touch points along your Bitcoin rabbit hole journey that just build up, charge up your trust battery. 
and to the point where you start to trust it more than you trust whatever bank you might be using um, or you know third-party money transfer apps like Venmo cash app um, so yeah I, I completely agree with Jordan there just using it getting familiar with it putting in the work continuing to learn about it continuing to question it like where am I wrong what what am I not getting you know try to attack your viewpoints a little bit like where are we full of shit attack our viewpoints a little bit I think that's what makes the whole thing stronger more anti-fragile and allows you to kind of trust it more mm -hmm. yeah I think uh one thing too just for the people listening I would recommend going to bitcoin dash intro.com uh, if you just want to start tinkering with this stuff it's an awesome website I think it has like 10 or 11 steps and it just takes you through each little step of getting involved with Bitcoin so like you know one of the first things I have you do is watch a video or two and then you download a wallet and then after you download the wallet then you learn how to send and receive Bitcoin and there are also awesome tutorials on YouTube by a channel called BTC Sessions, which I have used a lot to like learn how nodes and wallets work. Um, and they kind of walk, walk you through how all this stuff works. So those are easy ways to get involved. Um, Jake hit the nail on the head. And, uh, and yeah, you're, you're not gonna trust anything you don't, you don't spend time with. So you gotta tinker. Yeah. Jordan, you're someone just starting out, like you're, you're day one, day two. What would you do? How do you, what are some ways you'll go about acquiring it? Yeah. Kind of stole. What are some yeah. of the minimum best practices, would you say? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think the first thing I would do is I would just read about it. So I actually am working on a, a BTC or Bitcoin database right now that like makes it really easy for people to onboard. So I think before you even dive into sending Bitcoin back and forth um, or you throw any money at it, you got to understand what you're playing with or what you're converting your U.S. dollars into. So there are five awesome resources I recommend checking out. I actually have my database pulled up because uh, I was working on it before this. Um, and just some of those are, you know, why Bitcoin matters for freedom. It's an awesome video and article by Alex Gladstein. Uh, there's a book called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. I'm not going to go down the whole list, but I just recommend doing a little bit of reading, um, checking out some of the books and things people recommend. It, you can find some of that on bitcoin-only.com. They have podcasts, all sorts of stuff. I would spend just like the first day just learning, uh, the second day learning, and then the third day what I would do is go to bitcoin-intro.com. I would follow some of the advice there. Download Samurai Wallet if you have an yeah, Android that's what phone. I got. Yeah, I like it. It's a privacy focused, also just the coolest looking wallet there is. Um, Moon Wallet, M U U N Wallet. I don't know if it's pronounced Moon or Mun. I don't know. We're just gonna call it Moon. If you, you know, have an it's iPhone, like, it's like GIF uh, or GIF. You know what is it? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So I would download the wallet, and then you have to figure out a place to buy the Bitcoin. So. One thing I did want to mention is there is KYC and no KYC. So you're probably like, what the hell is KYC? Yeah, so I, was, KYC I actually just listened to that one because I was trying to get caught up on some of your um, episodes. <laughs> yeah, th this one's a very important one. So KYC just means know your customer. 
it's basically like a banking regulation where anyone basically doing any sort of banking with customers has to collect information about you. So like my name, my address, my, my driver's license, sometimes my social security number at this point, always my social security number. Um, so you have to give away all this information, which as you can imagine is dangerous because now they know all this stuff about you. And if they're, you know, as a company, they, it's a honeypot. So they have everyone's information. So that incentivizes like hackers and stuff to go to those companies and try to get that info. Um, so you can buy through KYC exchanges. So like Cash App is one, Coinbase is one. Um, there's a full list of them. And the beauty is they make it really easy to start buying because they're centralized entities and anything centralized is going to be more efficient than something decentralized. Um, well, there's a cost of but, giving you your personal data. Exactly. That's at the cost of your data. Now there are other ways to buy, which is no KYC. So you don't have to worry about that regulation. You don't have to provide your personal information. And honestly, that's where I'm steering towards now. I'm trying to do more of that. And Samurai Wallet does help, um, you know, give you your privacy back, but we'll save that for another day. Um, but some of those ways are doing Bitcoin mining. So getting your Bitcoin from the source, or you could go to a coin flip ATM. So some of you people listening maybe have seen these ATMs in like Walmart or something where you can buy Bitcoin and you can use a website called textverified.com. So you just give the ATM like a fake phone number and not your own phone number. And now you got Bitcoin without giving any of your info. Um, so those are just like some of the coin flip things at a local gas station, like five minutes from me. I was like, holy shit, that's actually around here and where I live. That's awesome. I'm in New York and I have not, I don't think there are any here, which really sucks. Um, but that is definitely one way I would be buying. Um, there's also a thing called BISC, B-I-S-Q, which is, which is a decentralized exchange where you can buy from like other people around the world, which I've used. It's been reliable. It's been great. So I, I will say, though, I am steering towards no KYC. But after that long rant, I think the easiest way for a lot of people listening will be just to buy some Bitcoin. Get started on Cash, cash App, App Swan, Swan, and Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin is my favorite KYC exchange. Um, they really focus on the education. They're Bitcoin only. You can make recurring buys and you can automatically have your Bitcoin go to your, your Samurai wallet or your Moon wallet. So I would recommend people use Swan Bitcoin um, just to get used to this stuff or Cash App or Coinbase. And then the next step is to send that Bitcoin to your wallet. And the importance of sending it to your wallet is if you buy Bitcoin on an exchange, you don't actually own Bitcoin. You're own, you own an IOU. Mm -hmm. So it's basically like, hey, I just bought a full Bitcoin on Cash App. That's great. But that's really just a bunch of digital numbers on the screen until I actually take ownership of it by sending that to my wallet. So that's called self-custody. Um, it really allows you to own your Bitcoin and own your money. Uh, whereas when it's your money is in a bank, like you don't own that. The bank owns that and they do all sorts of shady and yeah, all sorts of stuff money so um so yeah that's the importance of a wallet and then the last thing i would recommend is buying a hardware wallet um passport is my favorite one it actually looks like a little old school phone it's super cool and that gives you the utmost security in securing your bitcoin um, but those are kind of the steps i would recommend for someone obviously that was a lot 
the simplest thing you could do is after you take a few days to learn, and obviously learning about Bitcoin, Jake and I have probably put in thousands of hours, and we're nowhere near <laughs> the end of the rabbit hole. I don't know if the rabbit hole ever actually ends. Um, but yeah, Backtrack I would just... What'd you say? Sorry to cut you off, Jordan. But with, with Passport Wallet, that's what's called an air-gapped cold wallet. You need to pair it with a uh, desktop wallet, one a wallet you could download on your desktop or your laptop. Um, one that I really like is Sparrow. Uh, Sparrow Wallet, it has a lot of built-in privacy tools, similar to Samurai Wallet. And it's kind of maybe the new kid on the block when it comes to just building out new features and being a rock solid desktop wallet and inspector wallet as well. Um, in case anyone goes to buy a passport, <laughs> not knowing what they're buying, you need to pair it with a, with a desktop wallet. And those are two good ones. Yeah, I, I love Sparrow wallet. I, I've been using that a lot to pair with my, my passport hardware wallet. Um, but, you know, I kind of went on a rant, kind of said a few too many things. I think for people who are just getting into this, learn about it first. Take, I recommend taking a week or two. It realistically will take longer for the, longer than that for you to really understand what the heck's going on. But just take that time to learn. Then you can get on Cash App or Coinbase or Swan Bitcoin, whatever. Buy just $10 worth and send it to either Moon Wallet if you have the iPhone or Samurai Wallet if you have an Android just to see how it works and then continue learning and once you're comfortable buy a hardware wallet and move you know once you buy more bitcoin move it there so that's what i would recommend yeah, yeah. everyone in the world learn eventually um so you might as well start now and i tell my friends and family can buy it now or work for it later like that's kind of how this works we still have the opportunity to buy it prior to hyper-Bitcoinization, which is a theoretical phenomenon where everyone wakes up and decides, hey, I'm going to go to work and try to work for Bitcoin instead of dollars. And everyone who has Bitcoin is not willing to sell it for dollars. So you either have to mine it or work for it or steal it, which is why good operational security is important. Yeah, and at that point, too, we'll be buying food with Bitcoin. Like, Bitcoin will be the unit of account. So I might go buy an Apple for 100 sats or something. Um, much like we do with, you know, just swiping our credit cards nowadays, it'll just be with Bitcoin instead of U.S. dollars. Right. I, I think an interesting thing I've heard Jake talk about, um, and you're talking about, like, uh, deflation. Like, it's the whole idea of deflation. Some things, like, legit becoming free like food water i mean just basic stuff while we could put more money towards more valuable things that actually hold value because you know apples are like you know whatever they're not worth you know 139 a pound at giant eagle in, in reality let's be real exactly it'll it'll drive down prices for a lot of the stuff that we we want nowadays um and it'll be really easy to do it. And at the same time, I know one critique people have nowadays is like, oh, it's not easy to send Bitcoin and I gotta pull up a QR code and copy your Bitcoin address and all that stuff. 
like this technology is 13 years old like this stuff is and it's insane how quickly it's growing like jake um jake and i always talk about you know all the stuff going on on twitter because every day there's something new out or some really cool project or someone's building a, a vending machine where you can buy like stuff with bitcoin um so this stuff's all new um money takes time to be adopted and this is just part of the curve so you know to those people who are like oh it's so you know it's such a horrible user experience and all that like if you looked back five years ago you'd be like holy crap this thing is 10 times better than it was then and it's only getting better with the more people who join in and and contribute so yeah i mean electricity was hard when the, the first started getting rolled out so look at the internet no one really believed in the internet first and uh, now the internet's everything exactly um with going along the deflation thing something that i've always thought of is like okay so like food and just basic necessities go down in price like big time with bitcoin because we don't have to spend as much money you know because inflation is not really a thing with bitcoin the problem i thought about that what would be the, the argument of like because farmers will obviously not be making as much money but obviously the demand for milk you know uh computers chocolate apples just you name it basic stuff will still always be at a high but you know it'll still be at the same but in their argument what how would they make money will they make less money bitcoin the, these farmers or just these basic necessity people or they actually end up being fine oh boy that's a whole nother rabbit hole i uh <laughs> so there's this guy named untapped growth um jake probably knows more about him than me but uh I think he's like a farmer who's basically trying to uh, create local communities and bring farmers together and do like regenerative, regenerative farming and um, really take back the food and, and how we farm and take back the land and create good soil all on a Bitcoin standard. Because right now the more, and there's another guy named Texas Slim who's trying, who's in Texas and trying to create like communities around meat and beef and, and trying to take that back and, and also help with the regenerative farming and all that sort of stuff and make the soil good. So I actually think Bitcoin will make their lives 10 times easier. They're gonna get a lot more buy-in. And also it's because the demand, supply is capped. So as demand keeps going up and more and more farmers get on board, all it takes is more people buying in and they're just, they have more, more value. They have like their Bitcoin is worth more. And that's why it's so deflationary. Cause now like, instead of that Apple being hundred sats, maybe it's like 50 sats. Um, and that's just, you know, with demand and as it gets adopted more, but also, and this is another thing I wanted to touch on, you know, about self sovereignty, which is basically just like taking full ownership of your life and being less dependent mm -hmm. on society and, and institutions and other people. Um, Bitcoin really makes you want to be self-sovereign because it makes you take responsibility of your money. And when you start taking responsibility of your things, it's contagious. It makes you want to be responsible everywhere. So I also think that the more people want to be more responsible for their food um, and for their land, the more they're going to go to these farmers and, and try to learn from them. So that makes the farmers much more valuable and really puts them on a pedestal. So I think a Bitcoin standard is like the best thing that could happen to farmers and uh people with you know trade skills and and hard workers so and it really um, 
boost like local economies and really helps local areas rather than like big industries and it really feeds into the statement of a local equals global exactly and and one of the words thrown around a lot of times when people talk about the bitcoin standard are uh citadels so like you know potentially there could be a ton of these local economies um and then those local economies in and of themselves or towns or villages could just be a citadel and there's all these different citadels all across the U.S. And then these citadels, you know, have their own trade going back and forth. Um, so there's there's all sorts of articles and stuff talking about that. Um, but yeah, Jake, what's your your two sats on this? <laughs> I think that path towards sovereignty, kind of self-sovereignty, doing things for yourself, growing your own food, maybe sourcing your own energy, taking care of your own health, um, is the path towards deflation so if inflation is a vector and it's relative to each individual's lifestyle then so is deflation and if you live a life where you're continually trying to be self-sovereign growing your own food taking care of your own health your costs kind of drop to zero um so you're retaining more bitcoin over time your bitcoin is gaining in value over time and those things you used to pay for you know you no longer are paying for them because you're doing yourself doing them yourself so i think that's those three vectors is where deflation like each individual's life can be deflationary uh, in nature as a result of this path towards a more sovereign lifestyle because of all tied back to bitcoin you know the the contagion of self sovereignty, the and the desire not to want to give away any of your Bitcoin, and the fact that Bitcoin is growing, gaining in value every year, or all all the time, relative to every other good. Yeah, so I, I think one relative value. Oh, I was going to say that gets into the idea of relative value and subjective value versus versus objective value. Nothing's objectively valuable. There's no, no such thing as intrinsic value. Uh, down the whole Austrian economics rabbit hole, which is really linked up with I think, individual psychology um, and social sciences, which is, you know, you could do a whole podcast series on that topic alone, Mark. Yeah. It's just another rabbit hole to spend your time learning about all this stuff. Mm-hmm learning how people make decisions under resource scarcity. It's not what we've been taught in the economics classes we learned in state-run institutions. Well, even private institutions as well. I mean, you know, I went to Catholic school and still, I mean, they're not teaching anything different. They're crazy that, you know, the local high school's teaching you. It's all the same. It's all government approved. Or central bank approved. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing I wanted to add too is that Bitcoin lowers your time preference the more you dig into it. So what I mean by that is you're less about chasing like those temporary, you know, um, goods or services or those temporary like highs. Like you're more so about trying to store value for the future or save for your family or learn skills that are like very transferable and allow you to um, survive if things go wrong. 
uh, it really makes you look inwards and and take a little more responsibility. So I think that was kind of basically one of the things Jake was getting at is, um, you know, just taking more responsibility and, and looking more down the line instead of just being very in the moment and always just thinking like, what's the next high I can get? Or what's the next thing I can just buy really quick to look cool? Like, yeah, a lot of Bitcoiners who are deep down the rabbit hole aren't just buying Lambos and stuff all the time and trying to like flex on Instagram. They're buying like a lot of these land, investing in companies. Exactly. And and trying to build and um, really make a, a good effort to to better their local community. And obviously, like you were saying, Mark, you know, local community is everything and it eventually translates to like a better global community so mm-hmm. now i have to ask because you know i'm a political science major and i'm always thinking politics and stuff obviously right now we're in a big transitional stage of you know the fiat currency the bitcoin and even now the federal banks are in realizing bitcoin is the next thing how do you think the u.s because obviously we're probably we're going to lead in this revolution how does the U.S. look if we adopt Bitcoin and, like, specifically, like, like, funded government projects, you know, like, big stuff like the military or NASA, stuff that actually is going to matter for our, our the survival of human race and just protecting our own state sovereignty, especially with the fact that there's a limited amount of Bitcoin because it's not like the government can just print unlimited money to fund, like, the next big NASA trip to Mars. Well, Bitcoin, there's a limited amount, and... Obviously, you can't buy, you know, as much steel, maybe hypothetically, from what I think. So that's kind of a lot right there. But yeah. So are you more so looking for, uh, like, what's the political climate going to look like in the U.S. as Bitcoin becomes yeah, or more like how, how will big things be funded more? Because obviously, the U.S. won't have as much spending power because it's a limited currency, and they can't just like, oh, well, we need. I don't know, $700 billion for this next rocket. Well, we don't have enough. Let's just print some more money out, out and we'll get there. Well, Bitcoin, we'll have to like invest in it or in a rocket program, have citizens invest in it or whatever. I mean, I really don't. It's not the greatest question, but like it's may not the greatest worded question. No, I, I think it's a great question. Uh, oh, go ahead, Jake. It's an important one. I think probably plays out on multiple fronts. I think the U.S. definitely needs a strategic reserve in Bitcoin just for military purposes, mm-hmm. um, national security purposes. But then, more importantly, I think it's at an individual level and at the local level, like kind of a bottoms-up type deal where you have individuals. Purchasing Bitcoin, learning how to use it, getting it circulating through the local communities. And then maybe the properties of Bitcoin allow you to form societies where you don't need to have a, any type of tax burden. Um, that's something El Salvador is playing with. Um, because your money is gaining in value each year. you're kind of able to play around with different social financing structures, whether it's building new school systems, decentralizing and opting out at every layer, um, which I think starts at the local level, individual level. And to put it short, like a lot of these federal 
programs, these centralized programs just get smaller. Bitcoin allows individual states to regain their rights. And that's the whole concept behind the founding of the United States is, you know, if you don't let one state move to another, it's a decentralization of power in itself with the three branches and the, the states, states' rights. Um, and Bitcoin is kind of just an extension of that built into the monetary protocol. That's, that's, I think it starts at a local so- level. We might see, like, because I think I've I've talked this, the topic about you, with you, more like states start becoming a prominent thing again, like kind of like the old days, and the federal government really stand out of our business because I know I know like Adam Smith, you know, says the federal government should provide like three things: um, defense, a justice system, and can't remember the one, the other ones. Important, but those are like the big ones to me. Maybe like some help during like financial crises, but obviously Bitcoin eliminates that. Yeah, I think one thing to add to is you had mentioned like how is it go- how is NASA going to afford to send rockets to space? Um, I think one part that's really uncertain is how are things going to be priced on the Bitcoin standard? Like I have no idea how much an Apple will be worth in sets. And that's a whole other that- question itself. How's exactly? <laughs> that's like a theoretical question I haven't even begun to try to dissect because I'm just so ingrained in all the other stuff right now. But I will say. I will say to to Jake's point, though, um, you will see a lot of the power um, slip away from the federal government, and it'll be more on, like, the state, local level. Maybe, like, already we see Tesla, and we see uh, Blue Origin sending, or not Tesla, yeah, Tesla. They're sending, like, rockets. SpaceX. SpaceX, there we go. Virgin, Galactic, yeah. Right all these private companies. So I think you're just going to naturally see more private companies uh, or public companies start doing these things. It'll just be with Bitcoin funded by Bitcoin. And it's like, when you say they won't have enough money, it's like, we just don't even know how many sats all that stuff will be worth. Yeah. So So. in theory, a lot of our materials could just go down value, but still have the same amount of value they need. They won't be charged as much. Yeah. It's, the whole conversion from fiat to a Bitcoin standard is, I, I have no idea how that's going to work. How you just like uproot one system and just plug one in and then price everything in that. Um, and I'm sure there are some. Go ahead, Jake. I said, how are your negotiating skills? How bad does whoever's <laughs> trying to sell you shit want sats? How low are they willing to go? True, true. Exactly. And I'm sure there are like several historical examples too of like a change from one currency to another or one money to another. So I yeah. probably should brought on that. But yeah, that's an interesting question that I, I definitely need to explore myself. Do you think that question itself, like the conversion from one currency to another, especially with these currencies being totally different from any currencies we had in the past, you think that's a big reason that some people will distrust Bitcoin, have problems with it? Because that's something I also wanted to like lean into, like, like for the people who are against Bitcoin, do they have any value to arguments? They're actually good arguments that kind of like you'll be like, yeah, like they're right about that aspect, that which could be a drawback to having Bitcoin. Yeah, I'd actually say to the, to the first part you said that's a great point. Um, some people are just going to distrust it just because it's not what they know, like especially older people um they've grown up on the u.s dollar their entire lives i mean 
Jake and I have too, or, you know, well, we all have, yeah. 26. Um, and it, it's hard to change. Like people do not want to change because that requires a lot of work. And we're also getting lazier, um, you know, as society because technology is just making everything easy now. Mm-hmm. So um, the people who put in that work now are going to be rewarded for learning the new system and will also help with the adoption of it. Um, but to your next point, I think valid arguments against Bitcoin. Um, most of the, the FUD, so the fear, uncertainty, and doubt I've heard, um, I haven't really been like swayed by or concerned with. I think the one thing that I've always been a little worried about, though, um, is there are Bitcoin core developers. So there are developers who contribute to Bitcoin. Um, they write up Bitcoin improvement proposals. So those are like potential upgrades to Bitcoin. And the one thing that does worry me is I'm not too in tune with that entire process. So I, I do kind of wonder what goes on there. Um, you know, just just some of the things around upgrading Bitcoin. That worries me just because I'm not familiar with it. So that's like one of the things I'm actually getting into next. So I'm about to be done with this Bitcoin database I'm creating to help people listening um, and other people who just want to learn more about Bitcoin get their start, get onboarded, and learn a ton. Um, once I'm done with that, I'm going to move on to learning how to program Bitcoin. So I got like a full book by this guy, Jimmy Song, who's a an awesome mentor and teacher to a lot of people on all things Bitcoin. I'm going to go through that book and really dive into that part. So I think a lot of that's just like me not understanding the full process and how it works. So I don't distrust it, but that's probably where most of my concern is. Yeah, I, I don't even, know where to like the point, like, a, like, you know, even just stuff as basic as like a cyber, like an EMP or like a actual like destruction of whatever, like of our devices, like in the war standpoint. I mean, that's obviously a very vulnerable part, but, you know, with it, it exists in the blockchain, you get it back. But I guess it depends, you know, how far do you get set back in a you know horrible situation like that, like that you might take a while to get computers back, get like phones and stuff like that back. Yeah. So on that one, I'm actually not super worried about that because the beauty about having everyone setting up their own nodes and making it, you know, um, cheap, relatively cheap, is that there are nodes everywhere globally, like literally everywhere. And as long as one node exists, the blockchain is alive and well somewhere. The network is is running. So that's the beauty of decentralization. Also, there's a satellite in space by this company called Blockstream. That has the entire Bitcoin network on it. So it, it's also like a node. Oh, geez. Uh, and like they're... an emergency situation. Exactly. And there's a, a satellite kit that they sell where you could put like a receiver on your roof and receive, you know, Bitcoin network data to your house. Is that is that the um, same people make a Blockstream Jade, like the little uh, yeah. cold wallet? Yeah. Dang, that's nuts. Yep. Same company. So there are a ton of things going on with that. And Another or last example I wanted to mention is, I think it was uh, Kazakhstan. Their telecom companies turned off the internet there, and yeah. they have like fifteen percent of the Bitcoin mining hash rate. And a lot of the hash rate was pretty much like I think we just hit an all time high like a week or two ago. So like Bitcoin's very resilient, and that stuff will move and migrate. Um, but also with the internet going out, there was a lot of talk on Twitter about 
you know, how can we start using mesh networks and improving that technology? So a mesh network is like, instead of using, um, you know, like the internet or something or sending text messages through a carrier, we can set up our own date, private data channel and just, I can message Jake just by having this device turned on. And yeah, one example of that- like a mesh internet, like routers you could put around your home, but like, that's like a very basic level of like the idea. Yeah, and one another example is this thing called Gotenna. Um, there are these like, uh, I thought I actually had it right here, but I don't. It's like this little device that you could clip to like your backpack, and I could send messages to Jake without a phone carrier or anything. It's just because I have this device that we've established this data channel to which we can exchange data and information. So there's ways to send like Bitcoin to one another or to people using Gotenna, um, which is super cool. So there are, people are thinking about these things. Um, obviously, if you, if for some reason there's an EMP that goes off or EMPs that go off across the entire world and the satellite gets, you know, blown to hell, then I think we just have a lot bigger problems. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, you really uh, hope there's like some island out in the Pacific that has a note or two, some, you know, rich guy had made it and, you know, maybe he'll be like the last hope. I mean, even at that point, though, I think we're we're back to bartering. Like, there's no monetary system at that point. It's like True. survival. It, yeah. It, there's just a mass, a global outage, and satellites are down and everything. Like, I don't know what's going on, but whatever it is is not but, good. And that's when you got to rely on your subsistence skills, growing your own food, and things like that. Yeah. And that's why Bitcoin, at the end of the day, is just a tool to helping you become more self-sovereign and gain more responsibility of your money. There's a lot more to it. Um, it's just like the best tool we have for the money. Jake, were you going to say something or something? Yeah, I don't know if you have something to add. Can you hear me? Yeah. It's just information. It's just numbers and letters. Um, I'd be willing to bet someone out there has printed out the entire blockchain and it's Every single device or every single node does go down. You just restart it at whatever block the whole entire network went down, like the longest proof of work chain. Um, maybe gets manually typed in or something. Uh, that's a crazy, crazy thought. But I think humans are pretty good at preserving information over time. Look at the Bible, look at the Constitution, look at you know other religious text documents. Because Bitcoin is only information, like it's pretty resilient. It makes it pretty durable. And that also makes it even more important for someone to control their keys because that information, the 12 words or the 24 words in your seed phrase, that information is your Bitcoin. And that can, you know, I mean, I'd argue information is the most durable good on the planet. Um, as a little bit of a ramble, ramble, rant, rantle, but <laughs> a, a point I wanted to get across. Yeah. It's important to memorize twelve words. Like, even if every device goes off for some reason, if you have your twelve words, the Bitcoin network gets jump started again. Like, you'll be able to access your funds. Um, the new network on the longest proof of work chain. One, one more thing to add too is 
Um, those 12 or 24 words Jake is talking about, uh, when you set up a Bitcoin wallet, so like Samurai Wallet, for instance, you are given 12 to 24 words. I think Samurai Wallet's 12. You're given 12 words, and those 12 words you never show anybody. They are your way to gain access to your, your Bitcoin in case, you know, you lose Samurai Wallet. They don't touch a camera. They don't get screenshotted. Those get written down on pen and paper. They don't get uttered into, into by your voice. Like, assume everyone's watching and everyone's listening when you get those 12 words and when you're handling those 12 words. Because if anyone has those 12 words, they have your entire life savings. Yeah. Exactly. And one more thing, too. Like, pen and paper is great at first, but then the next step is to, you know, engrave that in steel. And, yeah, I need to you know, do that still. Yeah, actually, I do, too. I have, like, all these different methods of doing it, and I just have not done it. So <laughs> it's really not good. So you want to put it on steel, too, for the people listening, just because it's more durable. It can mm-hmm. survive a flood. It can survive a fire. Um, you want you want that information to be durable, but hidden away. No one should know that besides you. And ultimately, last step, just remember the words as well, because that's, that's never going to go away unless something bad happens to you or you just die. Exactly. And I think also just keep it simple. Like there are all sorts of different ways to secure your, your words and your information um, or to secure your Bitcoin. Like there's something called multi-sig, which just means multi-signature where you could have, you know, three wallets that are, and you need two out of the three to access or send funds uh, to someone else. And, you know, that gets a little more advanced and complicated. So mm-hmm. for people listening, just have the one wallet um with your 12 to 24 words keep it simple for now this technology is going to improve and there'll be easier ways to do this but for now just make sure you keep those words safe and make them put them on something durable so if anything happens they don't just get burned away i mean it would suck to have a piece of paper with your life savings just get burned away yeah or not have some like security and that again burnt somehow right exactly but they can always look that up, the BMV or whoever, to scan your license. Exactly. Um, yeah, just when you were just kind of a random note, just when you were talking about like a lot of these older people not knowing about Bitcoin, um, I was actually downstairs. My dad was watching Dr. Phil, and he actually had an episode dedicated to Bitcoin. I think he had like, you know, a person on the anti-Bitcoin side and the, a person who was, you know, pro-Bitcoin. And, you know... I asked him, well, like, how old was the guy who was anti-Bitcoin? He's like, uh, older, probably in his later 60s. I'm like, well, yeah, when you got a lot of, like, the Warren Buffett and, you know, those type of, you know, people telling you no Bitcoin, they just want to hold on to their, you know, rich value of the fiat currency. Exactly. I mean, Bitcoin is taking away from them. And actually, a funny story is I was uh, home for Thanksgiving in, in Illinois, and I was hanging out with my girlfriend's dad and then uh, some some of her, you know, the rest of her family. And they were like, oh, tell us about this Bitcoin thing. So we're talking through it. And what was funny is that they actually really like Bitcoin because they've lived through so much, you know, crap from the government. And, mm-hmm. you know, certain monetary things have happened to them that they really didn't like. And they're like, this is BS. And the more we just talked about Bitcoin, the more they were like, holy crap, that makes a lot of sense, and that would solve a lot of my issues. So um, it's kind of cool to see how people react to it. And 
I didn't really have to say much other than like what Bitcoin is, how it works, and then why I bought some. And they were like, sold. How do I buy some? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like... I'm not here. I'm not some evangelist. I'm just literally talking about how it works and why I got it. And they're like, holy crap. <laughs> well, that's the great thing about Bitcoin. It could, like, it could really like be something like a, almost like a miracle for some people who have been through like financial hardships or like been hit by poverty or just in third world countries. Like it's an actual like, it's not like, you know, with the U.S. dollar, that's like all the way up here in value and their currencies here. No, Bitcoin's just here and it's always there. It can only go up. And it's accessible to anyone who's able to download a wallet. Yeah, exactly. I think the sales pitch for Bitcoin depends on who you're talking to. It, it solves so many problems. Like... And it's a continually growing ecosystem that's just solving problem after problem. That depending on who you're talking to, it, the pitch or the explanation could be different every single time. Whether it's an environmentalist talking about energy usage or someone in a third world country whose currency is hyperinflating or someone who's been locked out of the financial system for credit issues, someone who's dealing with high transaction costs, I don't know, et cetera. But that's what makes it really unique. It really depends, like, where you're coming from, what angle you're attacking it from. And it could be different for every human out there. Yeah, definitely. Well, we've been in an hour and 13 minutes. I mean, I can't really think of any more questions. I mean, is there anything you guys want to bring up that you feel important to talk about? Like, I mean, there's always tons to talk about Bitcoin, but, like, I think we've talked about several important things. Yeah, I I actually think that was really awesome. I also don't want to overload people. Um, I guess the last thing I did want to mention is, you know, at the end of the day, Bitcoin is probably our best tool to take back, you know, our monetary wealth and wealth for, you know, our families down the line and future generations. Um, but it is only a tool and this is kind of like where I'm at now. Um, at the end of the day, it's also important to learn how to take back that wealth in, in your health, um, in growing food and things of that sort. So, you know, learn about Bitcoin first. I think learning about money really influences everything mm. because money literally touches everything we do. Um, and then start thinking in a low time preference uh, way. So think about the future, don't think about all these short-term things. And when you think about the future, you think about your health, who you're gonna be, where you're gonna be. Um, you think about how to grow food, how you're gonna survive, especially in these crazy times, like even with politics and stuff, things are changing every other day. No one knows where to live anymore. No one knows where to go. Exactly. No one can buy a house because mortgages are in, are insanely expensive. So that's why it's important to learn about, um, you know, real estate, learn how to maybe build your own home or a cabin in the woods, learn how to farm, learn how to, you know, start a fire. And if you, if that's just too much for you, then meet the people who are doing this and just pick their brains. So I would say Bitcoin is a tool, uh, one of the most important in, in the toolkit, but we gotta, it's important to start learning these other things because when shit hits the fan, you don't want to be the one in front of the fan. <laughs> yeah. You want to 
you want to get out the way and make sure you're all taken care of. So I think that's a big one. And I, a lot of the work I'm starting to do is going to be centered around self-sovereignty and, and really trying to take back our health. And because if they're lying, if the government and, you know, the overlords are lying about the money, then what else are they lying about? And health is a big one. They are just completely wrong on. So yeah, I, I urge you guys listening just to take a, a deeper look into health and all all that sort of stuff well i mean especially just after covid i mean just knowing how like unhealthy americans are it just it's it's sickening because we're the best country that has all the technology to do that and but you know lo and behold a lot of americans are just have horrible health exactly and i mean as people we're just getting sicker and sicker each generation whereas if you look back and like you know, 1900s, even late 1900s, a lot of people were very fit, and it was like weird to see someone who was obese. And yeah, and nowadays that's rich. more of the norm. Exactly. So it's uh, you know, I that's where I'm going, and I think a lot of people should go there, and I think a lot of people are starting to become more self-sovereign. I see it all over Twitter, and um, you know, just all over. I don't use TikTok. <laughs> I see that because my Don't. girlfriend sends me. I links. mean, I, I'm thankfully not that attached to it, but I, I can see how it's addicting. Yeah, and there's just a lot of more people kind of, uh, you know, waking up to to the whole self sovereignty idea. So, yeah, I think it's going to be very important, especially uh, what's going on here, especially with a lot of um, ideas of authoritarianism and socialist ideas. I mean, I that's a whole different thing, but like a lot of just not making your it's own decisions. The, it's all the same conversation, like the socialism, totalitarianism, collectivism. That's the antithesis to what we're talking about here, which is sovereignism, individualism, private property rights, you know, the ability to preserve wealth, health, etc. Um, when, when you take a big step back, I think that's what it really <laughs> boils down to a little bit. But to, to Jordan's point, what else can you do other than take responsibility for yourself, work hard, maintain humility and be able to learn new things, keep things simple, take privacy seriously, maybe try to move away from big tech. Jordan's newsletter has a lot of really good content about how you can do that in different areas of your life. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That, that's kind of a similar path I'm on, but yeah. it seems like the most path forward. I guess I was very optimistic because that's a really cool world once everyone gets there, you know? I guess I have like one more question. Like I was, I was a little reluctant to ask, but in the day, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I go to Kent State, you know, very liberal college, but in an aspect I see that a lot of people my peers are into is the idea of socialism and you know a lot of government control and maybe the idea of bitcoin feeds into a definitely they look at it as a through a capitalist standpoint some people i mean i have a class a lot of them view capitalism as bad and just destructive while bitcoin can actually be something that really does improve the lives of people in many ways that where our current fiat's not um doing and which maybe that is the thing that's causing their views but like ultimately i guess how do you maybe show them that Bitcoin can actually make capitalism a really good system. 
it's a system with rules, not rulers. I think rulers have incentives. Um, rulers incentives, you know, they're incentivized to favor themselves, to put themselves against others. That enables them to incur what's called moral hazard, where they're able to make decisions without worrying about risk because every decision has a cost. The idea of removing moral hazard means that there's no risk, but in reality, there still is risk. There still are, are costs to those decisions. They're just borne by everyone except those in power or controlling the rules or changing the rules to benefit themselves. So I think that's where a system with rules, not rulers, really levels the playing field and fixes capitalism. You know, we've never really had a true form of capitalism because we've never had a free market for money. Mm -hmm. um, they say capitalism is bad, tweeting and texting on their iPhones and stuff. It's kind of funny. Um, but Bitcoin, yeah, I don't know. I, where capitalism actually like shines in its true form. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a very disruptive social structure, socioeconomic. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that, I think Jake crushed it with that answer. The one thing I would add is, um, you know, after going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I realized how powerful incentives are. Like, honestly, incentives are incentives are the source of everything, um, at least in human action. I mean, even with animals. Um, so we've seen with our corporate overlords and the government, like at the end of the day, a lot of them act in their best interests. And you see like a lot of them insider trading and just getting super wealthy. And some of them are making like way more money in the stock market than people who like study this stuff for life. So, and that's because they know things and they know yeah. what's going on and they know that. So exactly. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, what are their incentives? And when you start digging into incentives, you see their incentives are to pump their own bags and, you know, say whatever they can to stay in office. They want to stay in office so that they can continue to pump their bags and, and see the easy way out. So, um, you know, with Bitcoin, there are no rulers. The incentives are, are very clear. You can earn Bitcoin through Bitcoin mining by putting in the work. Um, you're not guaranteed it. You have to put in a lot of work to do so. Um, you're incentivized to be honest in the system because the nodes are, are kind of enforcing the rules of the protocol. The rules are the same for everybody. They don't change at all. Um, and it's just like you're only incentivized to be honest in the Bitcoin system. Whereas in the other system, we have no idea what's going on. We're being lied to all the time. And yeah. the people who are, are running the show are incentivized to pump their own bags. So it's pretty obvious to me which one is better, at least from an incentive standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bitcoin incentivizes value creation um, instead of, you know, sucking up to people in political power for X, Y, and Z, sucking up to those that control the money supply. That's kind of what it boils down to, I think. Just the incentives. It's going to be really interesting and I think really difficult for a lot of these, you know, corporateers, corporate 
company for lifers that have just kind of ridden career politicians like they don't know how to create value so like that transition to a bitcoin standard to a bitcoin world where you're actually forced to create value like where do those people land in society in this new society are they janitors are they snow shovelers oh there's anything wrong with that um will create a lot more value than some of these other people but it's just interesting to think about yeah one thing i'd add to that too is that's why you're seeing some politicians who are like really starting to talk a lot about bitcoin and try to include it in a lot of their talks with congress and things like that you know some of them i think are probably just trying to get votes and be on like the good side the bitcoin side of the issue um because maybe they think that's where the world is going to go um and they want those votes from the people who are getting wealthier and wealthier every year um and then some of them i do think are actually genuine and and do want you know what's best for us which i think is actually moving to the bitcoin standard so for instance like senator cynthia loomis from wyoming um she's been a huge proponent of bitcoin for a while now and well, like I said, there are some politicians just pandering for votes, but I, I don't think she's one of them. So, yeah. Warren Davidson, he's a congressman in Ohio, and Senator Michael Ruley, he's a another senator in Ohio. They're pretty in tune with this stuff, it seems like, at least over Twitter. Um, I mean, they're incentivized. A good book I read at Jordan's apartment actually is Bitcoin and the American Idea. And it talks about the American case for Bitcoin as an extension of American values. And I mean, I think you'll just see politicians start to jump on that wave. Whether there's dishonest or honest intentions, I don't think it really matters. And they just might have to just jump on it because the people are just using it to some crazy level. They just they'll know they'll lose out in the end. Well, there's like between 40 and 50% of Americans own Bitcoin. Like that's pretty big, either directly yeah. or indirectly. Like that's, it, it trains left the station. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that kind of sums up this whole entire podcast. I mean, I think it was a great constructive conversation covered a lot. And, um, I guess once again, any like final things? I mean, kind of already asked, but any like plugins you guys want to do for yourself, or I don't know, last. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I mentioned a few things that I was working on. Um, where you can find a lot of them is my website. It's just buddylasta.com. So that's b u d d y l a s t a dot com. Uh, it's kind of a silly website. I, I use just HTML and CSS to make it. Um, and that's where I'm storing a lot of like helpful resources for you guys, um, some apps and places you can buy Bitcoin. And then uh, a lot of the projects I work on, like this Bitcoin database that I'm making to help people learn more and get started, will also be on there within. Yeah, I'll put it'll it in be the description like- of the video. And also, um, maybe I can put it in Spotify as well. So both listeners and oh. also viewers can just click right to it awesome yeah thank you mm-hmm. um so yeah that's where you guys can find me um i'm also on twitter uh i think it's at jlasty49 so j l a s t y 49 
I'll send that to you, uh, Mark. Yeah, you can so you send can just... links all through Discord, so we can do that. Awesome. Yeah, so I'll send that over. So just check the description of the podcast, and you guys can find my stuff there. And the Callus Coin is also on um, your buddy Lasta. Lasta. Yeah, so the CallusCoin.substack.com, that's my newsletter, where uh, as of last May, I started writing about Bitcoin. Um, I also recently started writing about free open source software, so like software you can use to replace big tech apps. And the reason why you want to do that is so that you can take back your data privacy because all these big tech apps data mine, so they like just take up all this data about you, store it in their servers. Hackers can come in and get that data. Um, these companies can also just use that data to you know give you personalized ads and use it as they want. So I don't like that. If you don't like that, check out the newsletter, and you can learn more about it and find replacements for big tech. And that is on buddylasta.com. In the it says newsletter on the website, so you, you can't miss it. Gotcha, Jake. Do you got anything? I know you had your uh, website, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I've really talked to you about about it for a while. Yeah, I took it down. I'm trying to find out or learn how to self-host it. Oh. I'll let you know. Yeah. When it gets back. Um. Right now, I've just been trying to educate kind of locally on Bitcoin. And yeah, trying to give convince those in my social circle to adopt some of these uh, big tech alternatives, FOSS options. Um, no, I stack and yeah, stats. Yeah, trying to stack as many stats as possible. Preparing for weird times, that's for sure. Indeed. But I guess I would just end it with telling people to focus on privacy, keep it simple, learn a little bit every day, do the work, don't trust us, verify, etc. You get the point. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, yeah, that's all. go ahead. No, I just said thanks. This, this is a cool conversation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. I, uh, I didn't know what we were going to touch on, but this was perfect, I think. Yeah, I thought it was really constructive. I think some people are going to learn some things, but obviously they're going to have to do a lot more themselves. And yeah, once again, thanks for coming out. This is fun. Always just, you know, welcome to come back on here. Hopefully, uh, actually in the studio next time or somehow, and uh, we'll figure something out maybe in the future. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Thank yep. you, everyone, for watching. I'll see you in the next one. Have yourself a fantastic day. The information or opinions expressed during the Just North of Hell podcast are solely those of the individuals involved. The primary purpose of this podcast is entertainment. As such, the Just North of Hell podcast is not responsible and does not verify any of the information contained in the podcast.